code. Um, that is various duties within a household. You'll remember that Paul divided members of a household into three pairs, wives and, and husbands, children and parents, and slaves and masters. We're actually kind of right in the middle of that. We've tried to look at those responsibilities irrespective of cultural norms and expectations. In fact, some of the things that I have said to this point um, actually fly in the face of culture. They, they certainly would not be popular uh, in society at large and perhaps have given perhaps have given some of you pause to think, even disagree. I, I trust, however, that what I have taught has been consistent with Scripture. And I also trust that my comments have not been as inflammatory as remarks made recently by other pastors right here in North Carolina with their sermons going viral and making national news. Remarks about which I am, I am frankly concerned. And so let, allow me the opportunity to do something today that I, that I do not normally do. This is the problem of not preaching for a couple of weeks. It's given me time to think, which is not always good. That means that a week from today, we'll cover the passage, fathers, don't exasperate your children on Father's Day. In the years that I have been pastor here, not counting um, holiday Sundays, I have seldom strayed from a verse by verse exposition of the book that we are studying. I, I think I've only done it once. I, I think I've only done it once in response to a current event, and that came after 9-11. I'm going to do it in response to a current event this morning. But it's actually not far removed from the general topic of family, that is, what is it that makes a household. Again, I have been deeply troubled by some recent actions of professing believers, mainly pastors, and so I am going to take time today to address the vitriol coming from both sides of the homosexual debate. Uh, certainly that debate has been accentuated by the gay marriage issue to include the recent amendment passed in, in our own state. Dennis Hollinger in his book, The Meaning of Sex, says, Homosexuality is one of the most divisive and volatile issues facing contemporary culture and church. Whole denominations are being torn apart. Families are fractured and societies are embroiled in legal and policy wrangling. Go to the CNN website, as I did last Friday, and you will find a half a dozen or so articles on their front page on this particular topic. It's a hot-button issue. Certainly, there is a great degree of polarization between those inside and outside the church. Most, most inside see it as wrong, while many outside do not or are at least ambivalent. I reviewed a number of surveys taken over the past couple of years regarding homosexual issues, most of them um, have to do with same-sex marriage, civil unions, equal rights, things like that. Um, the polls varied um, by a few points, but largely the American public is slightly against same-sex marriage. I say slightly 
because as I reviewed those polls, one thing became abundantly clear. If you look at them over the past few decades, the number of people supporting same-sex marriage is clearly growing. British theologian Theo Hobson notes that it usually takes centuries for a moral revolution to take place. That is, for there to be a reversal in, in a moral issue between that which was once condemned and is now accepted and vice versa. The issue of homosexuality, almost universally condemned in the 1950s, is well on its way to wide acceptance and vice versa, meaning those who maintain an objection to it are being soundly condemned. It should come as no surprise that we are well on our way to being a minority in our culture. Mainline denominations are taking up the issue, some taking stands against any and all forms of the lifestyle, um, going to the extreme um, of actively and angrily opposing homosexuality, hosting websites, posting signs, which I would not read aloud in public. In fact, I understand one such well-known church, Westboro Baptist, which I would suggest is neither Baptist nor a church, is planning a protest at the Billy Graham Evangelistic Association in Charlotte very, very soon. Other religious groups are allowing for homosexuality and so-called monogamous committed relationships, others even recognizing and accepting it among clergy ordaining practicing homosexuals. Where then, where then should we fall? Ang angrily picketing U U.S. servicemen's funerals? Full acceptance? Somewhere in between. It is true that some in the gay community and uh, others who support the lifestyle have declared it open season on Christianity. I have, I have heard the attacks. I've read the letters to the editors. I've watched the YouTube clips. Maybe it has those discussions where, where you find yourself have caused you to question and maybe even rethink your position on the topic. Listen, I expect non-Christians to act like non-Christians. We should not be surprised to find ourselves in a minority. I do not expect Christians to act like non-Christians. And I want you to know that my desire this morning is to, to breed in us a greater compassion for sinners like me. It is true a few weeks ago as we got to husbands and wives, right before the vote on the marriage amendment, that I encourage you to vote supporting marriage as defined biblically between one man and one woman. I saw it then. I still see it as a moral issue and encourage you to exercise your constitutional right to vote for a moral, biblical, and what one called a, a position for human flourishing. In other words, this is the way God designed marriage to be for our best. You, you might disagree with me on that. It's not my intention 
today to defend my support of a biblical position as a citizen of this state. But in no way do I support the vitriol coming from pulpits and churches across the country on this topic. Frankly, I have been both embarrassed and appalled by some of their ungodly comments. For example, one pastor in North Carolina said, if you observe some undesirable traits in an effeminate son, he illustrated that with a limp wrist, he suggested that you, quote, crack the wrist and give the boy a good punch. Another pastor in North Carolina suggested that we, this, by the way, made national news, suggested that we round up the lesbians and homosexuals, those weren't his exact words, but lesbians and homosexuals and incarcerate them behind electrified fences, lesbians on one side, homosexuals on the other, drop in some food every once in a while, but soon they would die out since they can't reproduce. Does that sound Christian to you? Another viral video from the Apostolic Truth Tabernacle in Indiana shows a toddler, maybe three, four years old, singing to the shouts of the congregation, there will be no homos in heaven. Another pastor in Kansas suggested, sitting down very calmly, being interviewed, suggested that it is the government's responsibility to kill homosexuals. Again, most of that ire was encouraged by the hearty amens of people in their respective congregations. I want you to know that I find those examples inconsistent with Scripture, unchristian, and ungodly. Let me be clear. It is true that Scripture defines marriage as between one man and one woman for life. It is true that Scripture identifies homosexuality as sin and, and condemns it. It is true, it is also true, that you do not have to go to the book of Leviticus to find it. Many on the other side of the debate in their attacks against Christianity rightly point out the book of Leviticus commands some things that Christians do not do. We don't, for example, stone rebellious children. But, but, but as we saw a few weeks ago, we do expect children to obey their parents, and we do see obeying parents is tantamount to obeying God, and disobeying parents is tantamount to disobeying God. I'm not going to get into all that again. But we don't stone rebellious children. And I want to suggest that, that we have Christian leaders out there who fail to understand the, the, the nature of old and new covenants, the unfolding drama of redemption, what God has done and what God is doing. They fail to understand the gospel. The point is, we can go to the New Testament to find what the Scripture says about homosexuality. I'm going to invite your attention to Romans chapter 1, verses 20 to 27. It's a long passage, but we need to pick it up in its context. I'm not going to do a full um, exposition of this text. I did this a couple of years ago. You can 
Go podcast it. Paul, Paul says in this passage that God's wrath is currently being poured out on rebellious humanity. Why? Because since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power, his divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood by what has been made so that humanity, so that they, we, are without excuse. For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God They weren't thankful. They became futile in their speculation. Their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools. They exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image of incorruptible man and birds, four-footed animals, crawling creatures. In a word, word, they became idolatrous. Therefore, because of this, because they turned from God, he gave them over. Notice that phrase. God gave them over in the lusts of their hearts to impurity so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. And they exchanged the truth of the one true and living God for a lie, the lie of idolatry, and worshiped and served the creature rather than the Creator who is forever blessed. Amen. For this reason, notice the phrase, God gave them over to degrading passions for their women exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural. And in the same way, also men abandoned the natural function of the woman and burned in their desire toward one another, men with men committing indecent acts, receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. I I have attempted to try and keep abreast of this issue, read, reading lots, reading what theologians in the other camp are are saying. And it's amazing to me how this passage and others like it are being reinterpreted today. If you you read, if you boil it all down, those interpretations simply dismiss the divine inspiration of Scripture. The Bible is in error. For example, those supporting homosexuality deal with these passages in one of the following ways. There are others, but these are the four predominant. Some suggest that biblical writers were unaware of the complexities of the issue to include the idea that some are born with same-sex attraction. Biblical writers, and apparently the Holy Spirit who inspired, just didn't know that. Second, biblical writers were products of their own culture. And while the homosexual lifestyle was affirmed, even lauded in both Greek and Roman cultures, it was not in Jewish culture, and most of the Bible is written by Jews, so of course it's going to be condemned. Third, there are some issues in the Bible that are no longer relevant today, right? I mean, like head coverings for women. I'm kind of looking around, don't see any. Women pastors and homosexuality. Fourth, the issue they suggest that Bible or biblical writers were dealing with was illicit sexual activity, not committed same-sex monogamous relationships. So, my questions as I read this and and and, and aware, all you got to do is watch the news, read the news, son. Become aware, as we are aware of this, this is in our face all of the time. My questions are these, are any of these thoughts valid? Are, are they? Should we lighten up on the issue, become more culturally sensitive and relevant? 
And what business do we have passing a law forbidding same-sex marriage? I mean, isn't that their choice? Haven't you heard that? Maybe you have even argued it. Aren't we legislating morality? I mean, come on, isn't homosexuality one of the worst sins in the Bible? And in the midst of all that, what should our response as Christians be to homosexuals? Now listen, to answer all of those questions would be a bit ambitious. I'm not going to. I'd be happy to talk to you about any of those. Not going to. My point this morning will, will end up with how should we as Christians respond? Now, we do need to understand what Paul actually does say in Romans chapter 1. It'll take just a few minutes to kind of go through that passage. You may remember the theme of the book is the gospel, the good news about Jesus and how the gospel is received by faith. But now having introduced the, the theme in chapter 1, Paul launches into a multi chapter discussion of the need for the gospel. Yes, the righteousness of God is, is revealed by, by faith, but the wrath of God is also being revealed from heaven. In other words, before Paul gives the remedy for sin, he gives a diagnosis for the human race. Before he gives us good news, he gives us bad news. And the bad news is this. God's wrath is right now being revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men and women who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. And exactly what truth are they suppressing? We, we just read it. The truth about God, His invisible attributes, His eternal power, His divine nature, which are clearly seen in the creation of the world. All you have to do is, all you got to do is go outside and look up. And, and you will see the, the incredible design of the universe, and you will understand that there must be an incredible designer. And this general revelation of creation is available to everyone so that everyone is guilty. He passes judgment. Therefore, if we've got this truth, we've either got to deal with it or suppress it and oppose it. And that's what humankind typically does. How have they suppressed it? They don't glorify God. They've not been thankful. They become futile in their speculations. Foolish hearts darken, become fools, exchange the glory of this magnificent, incorruptible God and made it into a corruptible image of stuff. Therefore, therefore, God is pouring out his wrath. Now, typically, when we think of the wrath of God, we think of those end-time cataclysmic events that are going to be poured out on humankind that we read about in the book of Revelation. But God's wrath is right now currently being poured out on us as well. And you say, well, well how? Well, I can think of a, a few things like sickness, uh, death, and so-called natural disasters, which are actually supernatural. Those just come pop into my mind. But here, Paul spends the rest of chapter 1 talking about another way that God has vented his wrath. Three times he uses that terrible, terrible phrase, God gave them over, meaning God has allowed humans to pursue their hell-bent rebellion. 
He has not restrained sin. He's allowed us to endure the consequences of our sinful choices. He has withdrawn his restraining and protective hand, allowing the consequences of our sin to take its inevitable destructive end. Look at it three times. Therefore, because what we, we turned on God, God gave them over in the lust of their heart to impurity. For this reason, because we turned on God, God gave them over to degrading passions. And just as they did not see, to fit, see fit to acknowledge, excuse me, acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to depraved minds. In other words, God's not passive. He has actively handed us over in our sin as an act of judgment. Actively hands us over to the punishment and judgment our sin deserves. This terrible cycle of ever-increasing sin. So, verses 24 and 25, he gave them over to impurity. Verses 25, uh, 26 and 27, he gave them over to degrading passions. We need to look at those very briefly. Again, please notice the section begins with the word, therefore. Because they abandoned worship for and gratitude, uh, worship of and gratitude for the one true and living God, because they embraced the monstrosity of idolatry, therefore God gave them over. First giving over was to impurity. The word lusts coupled with impurity, frankly, speaks of sexual immorality. It is a passionate desire for forbidden pleasure. Notice it is the lusts of their hearts. It springs from within. Jesus said it's not that which comes from without, but that which comes from within which defiles a man. James said that uh, sin starts when a person is carried away and enticed by his own lust. Same word. Lust is conceived. It gives birth to sin. When sin's done, death. God gave them over in the lusts of their hearts to impurity. I want you to understand something. This is very important. This is a general statement speaking of sexual immorality that was rampant in Paul's society and, it frankly, is rampant in ours. And this leads to the dishonoring of our bodies such that pornography, premarital sexual relations, extramarital sexual relations are commonplace. Not even going to talk about those. It's interesting to me. In a moment, Paul is going to focus on the sin of homosexuality. But he starts with the general idea of sexual immorality, but somehow the church today has elevated that one sexual sin, homosexuality, and made it the worst. Paul does not. It is one among many. Now, I suppose that one of the reasons uh, it's easy for us to focus on this particular sin is because it's so repugnant to us. Another reason, I think this is very true, is because it's said, it is estimated that 2 to 3% of people face the challenge of homosexuality, which means 97% of us don't. And so how easy it is for 97% of us to point the finger at something we don't even face. And yet how many of us have faced the challenge of sexual temptation? Let me give you the answer. Pretty much every one of us passed puberty. 
Two to three percent, think of that, struggle with the temptation of same-sex attraction, which means in a church our size, church our size, 20 to 30 people here have faced this challenge. <laughs> Probably not. Not in the church. Because of all places, the church is not the place for people battling this particular sin. I mean, would you go to a church where the pastor is spewing the vitriol that I cited earlier? My purpose this morning is to talk about how we as believers should respond rightly to this challenge. And I want you to know it is not through undue, unjust, angry, spiteful, judgmental, self-righteous condemnation. And it does bring us to the second giving over. This is the result of choosing sinful rebellion. This is a display of God's wrath. These are natural and supernatural consequences of our sin. He gave them over to degrading or shameful passions. Doesn't leave our minds to wonder. He explains that for women exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural. Men, natural function toward women burning their desire toward one another. This is clearly speaking of lesbian and homosexual activity. Now... As I said earlier, there have been revisionist attempts to reinterpret this passage such that today you will find churches not only accepting but affirming um, homosexual lifestyles. In addition to those ones I um, gave you earlier, uh, another reinterpretation looks something like this. People, listen, people need to operate within the integrity of their own nature. What does that mean? In order to be people of integrity, those born with a natural bent toward homosexuality should live within that bent. In fact, they would say it is wrong for so-called natural homosexuals to try and live heterosexual lifestyles. This is why they're so strongly opposed to ministries like Exodus International stuff that would help them to change, to repent and change their um, nature. This is frankly, gently, but frankly, a wrong interpretation. What Paul is referring to is not how people are born naturally. We are are never told in Scripture to look within ourselves to use our natural bent as the standard of right and wrong. Right? I mean, this would go completely against what Paul is arguing in the first three chapters of Romans. The problem is that we're not righteous We are not good. We cannot follow our natural inclinations. They're sinful. For example, if I, as a married man, feel an inward bent toward adultery, would I only be a person of integrity to act on that natural inward impulse? You say, of course not. That would be sinful. Besides, you'd be dead. Your wife would kill you. True. Just because we have a natural sinful bent does not mean we act on that. What Paul is actually referring here to is the natural order of creation. When God created man and woman, brought them together, Jesus affirmed this natural order of creation when he said, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife. And it will become one flesh. Paul communicates the same idea in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Each man is to have his own wife, and each woman is to have her own husband. 
This is how I can vote for the amendment. The husband must fulfill his duty to his wife and likewise also the wife to her husband. So here in Romans, Paul is referring to leaving the natural order of creation, man for woman, woman for man. Paul uses some rather strong language for the man. He says they burned in their desire toward one another, men with men committing indecent acts. He doesn't describe it, doesn't need to. Once you understand that there are other passages of Scripture, don't have to go to Leviticus, other New Testament passages of Scripture which speak of homosexual, uh, homosexuality as being sinful. I won't go into the reinterpretations, but 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Do you not know the unrighteous will not, unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't be deceived. Then he gives us a vice list. There are fornicators, um, that's sexually immoral. Um, idolaters, adulterers, effeminate, nor homosexuals, and those two words actually go together there. I won't explain that, but they do. Thieves, covetous, drunkards, revilers, swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. I don't know about you, but where do you fall on that list? 1 Timothy 1, realizing the fact that the law is not made for a righteous person, but for those who are lawless and rebellious, for the ungodly and sinners, unholy and profane, for those who kill fathers, mothers, for murderers and immoral men and homosexuals, kidnappers, liars, perjurers, whatever else is contrary to sound teaching. Scripture clearly puts homosexuality in its vice lists as things that are unrighteous and ungodly. But Paul goes in Romans chapter 1 from bad news to good news. In, in fact, we see it in capsule form in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Verses 9 and 10 say, yeah, unrighteous people aren't going to inherit the kingdom of God, but I've got some good news for you. After that list, which includes homosexuality, says in verse 11, such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and the Spirit of our God. That is the good news of the gospel. Paul says in Romans 1, Men and women who commit these shameful acts receive in themselves the due penalty of their error. Lots of discussion about that. You know, is that uh, sexually transmitted diseases within the homosexual community? Is that AIDS? Is this the due penalty of their error? Um, I, 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 I'm not going to get into that. In the context, however, it seems to be that the degrading sin itself is the due penalty. This is what God has handed them over to. Man was cr created to find fulfillment and pleasure in his wife and vice versa, that's required for human flourishing. To pervert the natural order is to find the due penalty. There cannot be, nor will there ever be, the joy that comes from what God intended, man and woman. So clearly, clearly the Scripture speaks against homosexuality. But let me, in closing, share just a few thoughts then about how we as followers of Christ, having been washed and sanctified from our sin should respond to those struggling with the sin of homosexuality. Again, to quote Dennis Hollinger, in the midst of the debates, we sometimes lose sight of people. We lose compassion. Those who struggle with the issue, those impacted by family members and friends who struggle or gays who no longer struggle. We are not dealing with an ethical issue. We are dealing with human beings. And so with Dr. Hollinger, I want to remind us that we are called, as he says, to walk and cry with, empathize, forgive, and support those struggling with this temptation. 
And we can do so by the following. Number one, rather than just sitting back condemning, we can offer the hope and healing of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Is that not what we are supposed to do with sinners like me? Listen to an interview by Dr. Al Mohler, president of Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, on this topic, hot-button topic, just a couple of months ago at Together for the Gospel. In it, he said, and I quote, We Christians are guilty of ridiculing rather than acting with redemption. We need to stop telling jokes. We need to stop holding it up as the sin of all sins. It's not even in my notes. If God has a list, if God has a list, it's my sin. Six things the Lord hates, seven are an abomination to him, and two of them are pride. Homosexuality didn't even make the list. Jesus said to some people who heard the gospel and turned from him, it's going to be more tolerable in the judgment for Sodom and Gomorrah than for you. If God has a list, hearing and rejecting the gospel goes above homosexuality. Where did we in the church make this one the worst sin? Listen to what he says. We need to be able to demonstrate Christian love while at the same time holding to Christian conviction. Second, we can offer ongoing empathetic support and accountability for those who find it difficult to change their inward inclinations. Isn't that what we do as Christians? Isn't that what we're supposed to do? Every one of us is sinfully broken, even in this area of sexuality. Every one of us needs accountability and grace. Again, to quote Dr. Moeller, we Christians are heard by homosexuals as saying, you are sexual sinners. They are sexual sinners, and so are we. The truth is, there are people out there who struggle with sexual sin. Yeah, he said, they're called human beings after puberty. We need to say that every one of us is a jumble of sexual brokenness if left to ourselves. The church needs to be the place where it's safe to talk about this. The question is not, are you misdirected sexually, but in what way are you misdirected sexually? And you are in the company of people who by the power of the gospel are redeemed, who by the power of the Holy Spirit are being conformed to the image of Christ. This is what Christ died for, then this is what the church can handle. They should not feel especially condemned more than any other sinner like me. Third, we can offer forgiveness when there is failure in the midst of struggle. i got a question for you. Has anybody ever sinned since you became a Christian? Offer forgiveness in the failure in the midst of struggle. Moeller said, we are a people whose worldview is directly informed by Genesis 3. This side of Eden, everyone's sexual orientation is sinful. How many messed up sexual orientations do we have? I don't know. How many human beings are there? What does normal look like? Here's normal, people who are desperately in need of salvation by the Lord Jesus Christ. Fourth, we must rid ourselves of homophobia and the corresponding hatred of homosexual people. 
No place in the church of Jesus Christ for those examples I read earlier. Now, I want to be careful. I want to be careful that I don't come across condemning, sounding judgmental and condemning uh, of them like they are of them. They just need help, just like them and just like me. Last, we ought to be a place, Alliance Bible Fellowship, a place not of unnecessary condemnation, but a place of grace, healing, forgiveness, and restoration for those who sin in any way. Any sinners here today? Let's stand for prayer. Father, my prayer for us is that you would make this place a beacon, a lighthouse of hope and health and healing. Yes, yes, we, we, we call sin what it is. Yes, we acknowledge that there are sins that the Scripture condemns. Yes, we admit that we ourselves have sinned and we've been redeemed or in the process of being conformed to the image of Christ and make us a lighthouse inviting others to join us in the journey, to be like Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen.